We come now to the reading of God's Word. Before we go into the text, uh, I just want to give you an idea of where we're at. Um, some of you are new. Some of you are kind of jumping in and jumping out. We've had quite a few guest preachers over the course of the summer. Uh, but back in the beginning of the summer, we started a series in what I call the Foundations of Faith in uh, the book of Genesis. We're going to be going from Genesis 1 to Genesis chapter 11. We are still plodding our way along, and we're finally into chapter 3. So after all these months, we finally reach chapter 3. And up to this point, we've been looking at God as creator, as the one who has made all things. Last time we, we gathered to hear God's word, we talked about how God made man, male and female. Those two complementary parts fitting together. But now we're moving from creation to the fall, and we're going to immediately see how in that bringing together that God intended was quickly ripped apart, broken down by the fall, by sin. And so, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, or the beginning of the service, uh, this is a heavy topic to look at the fall, but uh, my hope is that we will see in it, as always, the grace of the gospel. So with that, why don't we turn to God's Word. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to be reading the whole of the chapter, Genesis chapter 3. And just as a heads up, I could probably take three weeks or more just on this chapter alone. I'm not going to do that. We're going to go through it all in one. Um, so, uh, But nevertheless, there's a lot here, and so I'll try to do it as efficiently as I can. Hear God's Word. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent, serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, 
I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are Adam's seed, fallen in sin, and so we desperately need your help. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the greater Adam. Lord, help us to see Christ, to rest in him and trust in him as we hear your word. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Why? Why, over and over again, do I find myself doing the things that I don't want to do, and my better self doesn't want to do them, but I keep doing them? Why? Why, over and over again, do I not do the things that I know I should be doing, and I just don't do them over and over again? Why? None of us like the feeling of guilt and shame. None of us. But all of us experience guilt and shame. All of us. I don't, there's no one sitting here that hasn't had that experience of feeling guilt and shame. And doesn't it feel like a rolling wave, like sitting in the waves at the beach and letting them roll over you, constant, endless, sometimes greater, sometimes smaller, but those rolling feeling of guilt and shame come and go over and over, endless. Sometimes it feels like it'll swallow us whole, take us over, drown us. It's always present. And we do different things to, uh, to compensate, to get, to get rid of it, to, to push away the guilt and shame. The, the first thing often that we do is we hide, right? We, we, we ignore that guilt and shame or we hide from it. We pretend it isn't there. We try to ignore it. Sometimes we do this thing where, well, I've done these bad things, but if I pile up enough good things, if I just am good in this area of my life, I can, I can overcome this bad area of my life. And we put our good works on a scale, and we try to, try to fit that scale. 
Sometimes we wallow in it. Woe is me. I'm such a terrible person. Woe is me. And we just wallow. We loathe ourselves. Some of you know that feeling. Sometimes we blame others, particularly our parents. Pretty much everything wrong with us, we can say it was my parents' fault. That's the, that, it's all them. Sometimes we bear guilt and shame like a badge. Well, look at me. I'm just a messy person. Deal with it. I'm just a sinner. You've got to own that. I'm messy. Sometimes we get so tired of that guilt and that shame and that feeling that we've done wrong that we say, you know what, the only answer is to take this thing that I've done that is evil and call it good. Shift the playing field. Well, it feels good, so it must be good. Therefore, I'm not going to call it evil, even though I feel some sort of guilt about it. But that guilt is wrong, so I'm just going to call it good. Try to do away with it altogether. We blame our culture. We blame religion. We tell people that it is just the shackles of repression and oppression. If we can just get rid of this guilt and shame, we'd be okay. We can get rid of, get rid of it all. But at the end of the day, in the quiet of our rooms, we toss fitfully in our beds. And our consciences cry out. They say to us, you're so selfish, Rob. You couldn't even take time out of your day to hang out with your child. You're so mean. You really had to yell just because you were frustrated and annoyed? You had to yell at your spouse? You know that feeling. Why? Why is it that no matter how hard we try to escape, we can't escape those feelings of our guilt and our shame? Our text this morning actually tells us why. It tells us. It gives us the foundation of what happened way back when. The very beginning when Adam and Eve were in perfect harmony and perfect relationship with each other and with God and they had everything that they needed. And in that moment, they sinned. And their story is our story. The reason we feel guilt and shame is for good reason. It's because we sin. And sin destroys. It breaks down relationships. It corrupts our work and our life. It opens the doors to decay and brings with it the finality of death. It's real. It separates us from God himself. But there is hope in the text. That's a lot, right? I told you this was going to be a heavy sermon. I told you you're going to feel that kind of weight. But there is hope in our text. It is not just guilt and shame. It is about relieving that guilt and shame, knowing that the place that you go to get rid of it is not in yourself, but it is in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, the seed of the woman. And we're going to look at that. The hope 
that we have in Jesus. Like shafts of sunlight through a storm cloud, God moves towards the guilty and the shameful, and he hints and promises redemption in this text. And we're going to see that. And friends, those of you, and I'm going to say all of you, who struggle with guilt and shame, there is hope for sinners like you and me. There's hope to be set free. And I want to look at this in four parts. Hopefully we can get through it all quickly, but we're going to look at it in four parts. First is the big lie. The second is the cover-up. Third is that we're caught and convicted. And fourth is the pardoned, the pardon promised. So first, the big lie. Uh, just as a reminder, this is God's word. Uh, this is historical narrative. And I say that up front because sometimes we can look at a narrative like this and think it's sort of mythological. I think sometimes we look at a text like this and we say, oh, it's, it's allegorical or, or it's just kind of a picture. But no, this is, this is what has happened in history, in time and place. So I, I say that up front because some of the things are mysterious to us. We're immediately introduced in our text to a talking serpent. All right? None of us, I don't think, have experienced, unless your name's Harry Potter, a talking serpent. But I want to say that at the outset, let me suggest to you, is that I think one of the things that modern, modern culture, Western, late Western modern culture has done to us is that it's blinded us from the spiritual realm and the spiritual world. It's helped us kind of ignore a whole aspect of, of reality that, that is less visible, that we don't see, and that is the spiritual world. The Apostle Paul talks quite a bit about it. We don't fight against flesh and blood, but, it, but against powers and principalities. And in the New Testament, Jesus himself confronts people that are, that are dwelt in by demons, demon-possessed people. And he has conversations with these demons. In fact, in one experience, he not only has a conversation with the demons, but he casts them into a herd of pigs. And so we at least know from the gospel accounts that demons can live in pigs. So why can't the prince of demons take on this form? Not only that, but this is not the only talking animal in Scripture. Maybe you don't know that. But there was a, uh, there was a donkey before. Owned by this guy named Balaam. And he, the Lord caused him to speak. He turned to Balaam and he's like, why are you hitting me? <laughs> I'm sure a lot of our, it would be interesting if the Lord allowed all the animals to speak. But anyway, I think at the very least what I want us to see is that this is God's word, true history, though there is mystery in it. And there are things that we are not going to unfold and we're not going to be able to talk about here that you may have questions about. And I want to encourage you to come and talk to me afterward. I'd love to have discussions with you, but there's just only so much time in the sermon. So I just want to say, there's going to be stuff that you may say, well, what about X? But I just want to encourage you. Um, uh, there is some mystery here, but this is history. So what's the first thing that we note? Here in our text, when it comes to thwarting God's plan and destroying God's creation, the evil one did whatever it took. So he, he entered into the craftiest of all the beasts, the snake. I don't know why a snake is crafty. I don't understand. I don't, 
That's one of those mysteries. But he enters into it. He took advantage of Adam and Eve's role as caretakers of the garden. Remember, Adam went through the garden, naming the animals and caring for the garden and protecting and keeping it. And so here's an opportunity, the evil one says, to come alongside of Eve. And he spoke to the woman. And it should have been clear should have been clear to Eve, it should have been clear to Adam that the serpent is not like us, it's not one of us, it should not be speaking and reasoning with us. Something ought to be done about this creature, but Adam and Eve listened to him. And he suggests a lie, and he starts very subtly. Let's look at it. It's, it's not even quite a lie, it's more of a question. And it could have been asked honestly or sincerely. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, it's not necessarily a lie, right? He's asking the question, what were God's words? But notice how he frames those words. To put into Eve's mind some niggling doubts. Often rebellion against God sounds innocent at the outset. We say things like, well, what does the Bible actually say? I mean, I know what the church says, but what does the Bible actually say? Does it actually say that it's wrong to sleep with my partner before marriage? Does it actually say that? Can you proof text that for me? Is that an innocent question? Could be. Innocent sounding. We're just seeking the truth, right? Maybe they're innocent. Maybe somebody has a sincere question. What does the Bible say concerning my sexuality? Or what does the Bible say concerning this tree in the garden? What does God say concerning the tree in the garden? But more often than not, I think those subtle questions are attempts to redefine the law of God. They're attempts to take and twist God's word to make a new law defined by us unshackled from God. This is what the, the serpent wanted. It was trying to get Eve to reconsider God's commands. Is God's command this? And it is dressed up like an innocent question. As an aside, I want you to take note of this. If you find yourself or your friends subtly trying to shift the playing field on a topic... I want you to do this. I want you to ask the question, why? Just ask, ask the question, why? If you or your friends say, I I'm just really want to know what God says. I just want to understand God's word so that I can obey him, that I can love him, that I can follow him. That's good. That's an innocent question. But if the answer to that is so that the friend or yourself can free yourself to live how you want to live, the question is no longer innocent. Satan's question was not innocent. Eve catches the untruth. She does a good job. She catches the untruth and states what God, in fact, said. But she added a little bit. I don't know if you noticed this, but if we go back to uh, chapter 2, God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it, for in the day that you eat it, you will surely die. Now, we'll go back to what Eve says when she responds to the serpent's question. She says this, 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I don't remember God saying anything about touching it. And maybe that isn't a big deal. Maybe it's just like Adam and Eve said, you know what? It's better for us. It's just, it's kind of like temptation. You just flee. You just, you don't go anywhere near it. You just stay away from it. And so Adam and Eve said, you know what? Just don't touch it. But I think that there's something else going on here. I think this, the serpent is trying to say, isn't God overly harsh? Didn't he say you couldn't eat of any tree of the garden? No, no, no. He said we could eat of any tree of the garden, just not this one. Unless we touch it, we surely die. She responds with the truth plus, with law plus law. And maybe it exposed her fear of the Lord. Maybe she didn't quite trust that God was good. Maybe there was starting to become this niggling sense of doubt in her that what God was telling her to do was what was good and best. And so she says a little more than what the Lord God had said, point, making God to seem harsher than he really is. Well, the servant presses on, doesn't he? He presses on. His lie becomes more bold. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, what, it, what the servant is doing is he takes that seed that he planted with the first question, and then he, he makes it to grow and to blossom into this full-blown lie. He takes her fears, maybe, and drives them home. Not only does Eve now not trust God, she thinks she should be in charge. Become like him. Who does God think he is anyway? If God loves me, then he would allow me to have this. And now, if I have knowledge of good and evil, if I can understand these things, I would make laws that were better than God's laws. I would do what was right and good. God, why did you make this one tree that I couldn't eat? I could do better. I could do better. And notice a couple things that he does. He removes the consequence from her mind. You will not surely die. Don't worry about that die thing. Set that aside. You're not going to die. All of a sudden, oh, so it's not that big a deal if I eat the tree. Maybe God gets mad at me. Maybe not. But, he, but I won't die. Then he gives her the hope of becoming like him. Of usurping him. Pride is called the father of all sin. Out of it flows everything else that we do wrong, but it begins with pride. And what is the pride? The pride is maybe simply put, I know better. Right? I mean, that's pride. I know better. I could do better than God. Often one of the biggest arguments against the Christian faith is the problem of evil. It goes something like this. If God is good, if he's actually all-powerful, then why does he allow evil? And when our friends pose this question to us and we're trying to convince them that God is good, that he is powerful, that he loves, etc., we're trying to give them the gospel. When we're posed with this question, we often shrink back and we're like, yeah, why? Why is evil? Because we struggle with this. We struggle with suffering and evil. We don't understand it all the time. And so we, we kind of shrink back from the question. If God is good... Why? But at the root of the question, and this is really important as you talk to your friends, at the root of the question is this idea. I know better 
how to run the world than the God who made it. At the root of the question, if God is good and powerful, why does he allow, presumes that you know better. This is pride. If only I were in charge, everything would be better. Let me ask you the question. If you were in charge of the world, would everything be better? Just, just think about that for like 10 seconds. You don't need it. Five seconds. I certainly know it wouldn't be. Ironically, it's the very same pride expressed in the question that is at the root of all sin and suffering. Ironically, the very problem of evil is rooted in that issue of pride of humanity. The fall happened because of our sin. Sin entered the world. That means suffering and evil entered the world, not because God was bad or was not powerful, but because we were bad and sinful. It was our pride that in fact caused it. Suffering, evil, and wickedness is not something out there. And this is really fundamental. Wickedness, evil, and suffering is not something that happens out there because of institutions and problems in the world. It's something that begins right here with us that says, if only I were God. I want you to consider, how does your pride express itself? I'm just curious. Just consider that for yourself. How does pride express itself in your thoughts, your words and your actions against God. Well, it's all a big lie. Not only can we not become God, but in fact, in our grasping after glory, right, to become like God, we fall. And by fall, I mean we fall into sin and we fall into separation. Uh, rather than becoming wise, we become fools. Uh, this is, this is the nature. We sit there grasping after God to become like God, to, to pu- puff ourselves up, to unshackle ourselves from God. And in doing all that, we actually fall. In trying to usurp God, Adam and Eve become distanced from Him. And not just from Him, but from one another. Eve eats the fruit because she saw that it was good for food and a delight to her eyes and thought that it could make her wise. In her heart, she said, God must be wrong. Just look at how good this is, how good this feels, how wise I will be. It must be right. Her desires began to define truth rather than God. And where was Adam? You notice that the servant never talked to Adam, right? That was kind of clear. Didn't talk to Adam. Where is Adam? Oh, Adam. Negligent, silent, abdicating Adam. Husbands, fathers, men, every time I read these words, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. When I read those words, I feel the weight of my own negligence. Are you husbands and fathers praying for and caring for the spiritual health and well-being of your wife and children? Men, are you preparing your own hearts to be humble servants of the Lord, following Him in all your ways? Or are you standing back like Pilate, 
When things go down, you just stand back and you wash your hands and you say, what is truth? Meh. What is truth? It's just another form of pride. Not recognizing that we are called to be spiritual leaders, servant leaders in our home. It's just another form of pride. It reminds me of, uh, uh, you know, those those documentaries you see, they're like uh, on, on the animals. And I remember watching one on lions. And particularly, you know, lions in the Serengeti, they have these prides, right? That's what they call them, the pride. Uh, and, and one of the things that just really struck me was, Basically, the women run around getting all the food, killing all the animals, and what does the, the, the parent lion do, the father lion? It just chills. And when the food gets brought back, he eats first. And then he lets the, 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 the female lion go off and do her thing. This is Adam in the garden. He's like, I'm the man. I'm the king. I'm in charge. All right, I'm just going to let it all roll out, whatever happens. Don't let the big lie rule your life that you know better than God, that you can define for yourself what is true and right and good, that your pleasure and happiness is found not in trust and obedience in God, but in the fulfillment of your own desires. Well, guess what? That fruit did not satisfy. It says that then, after they ate the fruit, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. This is a great cover-up. <laughs> the fall, then there's the cover-up. The, the big lie, then the cover-up. In an instant, everything changed. Everything. Adam and Eve, who had perfect communion and union with one another and with God, now looked at each other, and what did they feel? Did they feel lovey-dovey? Oh, like, oh, you're naked. Or maybe I'm naked. That's probably better. Don't look at me! Nakedness and shame. And they made these pretty half-hearted efforts. They took the biggest leaf they could find, I guess, the fig leaf, the big leaf. They sewed them together and they tried to cover themselves up. I, I go back to the things that I talked about at the beginning, all the ways we try to cover up our shame. Pretend it isn't there. Compensate for it with good works. Wallow in self-loathing. Blame others, our parents. Uh, shamelessness with it, just be authentic, this is just messy me, uh, turn evil to good, and the like. It's all part of the cover-up. It's what we do. None of us wants to feel that guilt and shame. Not one of us. We want to get rid of it. The problem is we can't. And so God comes. And they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. It says, in the cool of the day. Now, that's a very sort of quaint picture. You have the cool of the day, right? We wish there were some cool days or cool parts of our days right now. There aren't any. But another translation for walking in the cool of the day is walking in the wind part of the day. Now, this is how I picture it. When God comes in, maybe he comes in like with Elijah. He can come in as silent and he can come in loud. I think he came in loud. Have you ever been in a hurricane? Have you stepped outside in a hurricane? What's the noise? It's deafening. You can't, 
You're watching things, but what's really remarkable is how loud it is. Here it says that Adam and Eve heard him come. Here comes the living God, judge of heaven and earth. And what do they do? Well, they hide. And I think this is a pretty basic instinctual thing to do, right? Uh, they hid themselves because here comes the Lord, the living God, and He comes and He is a God who is just and righteous and holy. And He comes and they said, He said to them, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And what do they do? They hide. It's completely understandable, but it's completely ridiculous. It's completely understandable. What would you do if the living God was coming down right now into this place, you would cower, you would go down, you would be scared. Like Isaiah, when he sees in that vision throne room of God, he is a man who is undone. Adam and Eve were undone. And they hid themselves. The understandable response to their guilt and shame. Their lives were forfeit. I'm sure they knew that they could not hide, but it is what we do. Run. How are you with your sin? We're going to come to the grace of the gospel in a minute, but a lot of times in our sin, what's our, our reaction is not to go to the Lord. The good news, and I'll just kind of hint at where I'm heading in a little bit, the good news here is that God comes to them. God comes to them. And he asked them a question, and one commentator was really insightful. He said, he said, God didn't come and ask them why. Why in the world did you do? This is what I do with my kids. Why in the world would you do? Sorry, sometimes I do. Like, what were you thinking? He doesn't start there. He starts with, where are you? It's not because God didn't know where they were. He's the, he's the living God of heaven and earth. He knows exactly where they are. He has no question as to where they are, but he, bring, he draws them out. Where are you? This is the God of grace and mercy, but he is a just and holy God, and he comes in the whirlwind and says, where are you? Where are you? Adam Blubber's a pseudo-confession. Uh, and I say this because he says, I was naked and ashamed. Um, yep, that, that describes you, but that doesn't explain anything. I was naked and I was ashamed because I heard the sound of you in the garden and I hid myself. The Lord says, oh, and by the way, Adam, who told you that you were naked? Why did that become a thing? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to? Well, there goes the confession because now he's done confessing and he says, he doesn't say yes. I mean, he does say yes, but, it, but, he, but he quickly shifts the blame. No, no it, was, it was this woman whom you gave to me. So he, he turns the blame, not just to Eve, but he turns the blame on God himself. It wasn't my fault. The ultimate blame shift. God, you're to blame. How many times do we say this about God? 
when we struggle with something, when our lives are a mess, when everything seems to be going wrong, when our sin kind of rules over us, we say, God, why did you make me like this? Why did you put me here? Why did you bring this all together? Why, why, why? Lord, it's your fault. Have any of you done that? Yeah. When we read the text, we see the cover-up so clearly. And we also see how utterly feeble it is. Yet when we're in the midst of our sin and guilt, I think what happens is we lose perspective. We don't want, we hate the feeling of being in the wrong, of being called a sinner. Nobody likes that feeling. And the reason we can't take it is because it means that we're flawed, that there's something wrong with us, that, that the problem of evil isn't out there, but it's in us, that we're not good. When we, when we rest in that place, it's a terrible feeling. We don't want that feeling. And that's right. We shouldn't want that feeling. It's hard for us to sit with that. But let me encourage you. Unless you sit with that feeling... You cannot understand the grace and forgiveness of God. Unless you understand what has happened. That I am not good. That I am a sinner justly deserving the wrath of God. Friends, there's no covering it up. There's no hiding. There's no way to shift the blame. There's no dismissing it. There's no ability to change the playing field. It's the only way forward is to come to terms with this truth. As Nathan told David after he had sinned with Bathsheba, Nathan said to him, you are the man. That's all of us. Eve saw it a little more clearly. She didn't blame God, but she did blame the serpent. She bought his lies. Hook, line. And sinker. Apostle Paul picks this idea up of us being broken sinners. In fact, if you read chapter 1 all the way up pretty much to chapter 3 and then a little more in chapter 4 and 5, uh, you get this idea. There is no one who is righteous. No, not one. We're all sinners, justly deserving God's wrath. Adam and Eve were caught and they were convicted by the judge of heaven and earth. They were caught and convicted. just want to look real briefly at the curse. I know it's getting on. I want to look real briefly at the curse. We're going to skip over the curse of the serpent for a minute. We'll come back to the curse of the serpent. But I just want to look at the, the, the curse. And we're not going to be able to go into all of the meaning of all of it. Um, we'll, we'll just brush on it. But I do want to notice two things. One is, in, with both Adam and Eve, there is both a physical curse that's given to them as well as a spiritual relational curse that's given to each of them. The first one with Eve, uh, she said, the Lord said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. And then the, 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 the spiritual or the relational side says, and you shall desire, you, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, there's lots to be said about that. And if we were doing a course on, uh, marriage, I might talk at length about this, but this idea that there is conflict built into the relationship between man and woman, I think is clearly laid out here as a result of the curse. What was perfect in Genesis chapter 2 is now ripped apart. This relational nature of these two. 
And then to Adam, their physical, he was going to labor. And you'll notice that the, the, the writer, Moses here, goes on and on about it. He says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth uh, for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. I think what I want us to see here is the all-pervasive nature of the fall. There isn't anything that is not affected by it. Everything is broken down. Our relationship to the world around us, we're wondering about uh, global warming and all the climate change, and we're wondering about uh, the, the conflicts in Ukraine, and we're wondering about social injustice and unrest in our own country, and we're wondering about all the brokenness of our world. And we're wondering about diseases. Now it's monkeypox. I can't keep up. It's a result of our sin. Permeating effects. But the greatest effect we see here is the spiritual effect. You remember, God had promised that if you eat of it, you would surely die. And so... The Lord curses Adam and Eve and says, Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Paul picks up this thought. No one is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. That's the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. And we see this every day. There's one thing that is guaranteed in this life, isn't that right? Death and taxes. Isn't that how the saying goes? There is not one of us, apart from the return of the Lord Jesus, that does not face the grave. We push it off, we ignore it, we pretend it's in the future, but the reality is we don't know what tomorrow brings. And some of you know the pain of losing loved ones in an instant, in a moment. Where is our hope? How do we escape our guilt and shame? What is the answer to this thing called death that none of us can escape? The pardon promised. The Lord curses Adam and Eve, but he also curses the serpent. Now, there's lots of questions you might have about this, about the, the physical curse of the serpent, right? It says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and, to, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I don't know all the significance of what that means. Does that mean that there used to be snakes with arms and then all of a sudden now they're on the bellies? I, I, I don't think that's ultimately what the text is about. I think it's about the evil one and I think it's about his place and being brought low and to being crushed. And the reason I think that is because of what comes next. In Genesis 3.15 it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. Now, that might seem like odd thing right here in the middle of a curse. And what does it even mean? At the very least, it means there's some grace already involved, that death would come, but it wouldn't come right away, and that there would indeed be offspring, spiritual offspring, both of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we're going to look at this in the weeks to come as we move on to the story of Cain and Abel, and as we look at the, at the lineage all the way up to, to Noah, we'll see different lineages, and we'll see this these sort of two streams, and we really can follow these two streams all the way throughout Scripture between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Those that are opposed to God and those that are for God, those that believe uh, that they have the right to make themselves God and those who worship and bow down to the living God. And what God is saying here is He curses this, the serpent, the evil one. As He looks on him, He says, Don't you worry. The story isn't over. You may have brought about this terrible event here, tempting these two, mine, my people. What you have done here will be dealt with. And ultimately, the seed of the woman comes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly the evil one bruises his heel he hangs on a cross, and he dies, and he suffers, and he is derelict, and he cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There is not just a rending of God and us, but there is a rending in heaven that we can't even explain as Christ suffers on the cross. The evil one thinks he's one, of course. He has not one. For Christ in that moment conquers sin and death. And in the grave Christ lay, but He broke free of that grave and He rose again from the dead that we might have life and life eternally. So that we can say, I am no longer bound by my sin, but I am set free. I am forgiven. You'll notice at the very end of this passage, there's this little note says, the man called his wife Eve. And I think right there, Adam is saying, there's hope. Here is the mother of the living. For the seed is coming. But that isn't the end. Notice here it says, he called his wife Eve because she's the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They, they couldn't cover themselves. They needed a covering that would cover their shame and their guilt and of course, throughout the Old Testament, we see the blood of bulls and goats making sacrifice, but all of that pointed forward to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But here's the other thing. When Christ dies for us, when we're united with Him, what does He do? He clothes us in His righteousness so that when the living God looks on us, He says, This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You are forgiven. There is no more shame or guilt. You are set free. And that's good news. Promised here, even in the worst of times. In a moment when there was no hope, God came towards them and offered them the good news. Jesus Christ. Let's pray.